Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. In this edition, Tim talks with Alwyn Turner about his book Crisis: What Crisis? Britain in the 1970s. They discuss the politics, the cultural upheavals, the TV and the pop music of the 1970s, including the vexed question of whether Middle of the Road and Shawadi Wadi were more important than Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. Hello, this is Tim Haig reads books, and the book I'm reading today is Crisis: What Crisis, which is subtitled Britain in the 1970s, and that's what it is. It's a social history of our great nation in that interesting transitional decade that uh, that I remember from when I was a boy, and which Alwyn Turner remembers because he was presumably a boy then too. I think were you Alwyn? Mm-hmm. I'm here in Alwyn's flat in a beautiful downtown Kentish town. And we've been looking at... Well, I'd, I'd forgotten what a startlingly alien place the, the 70s were. If you were alive in the 70s, you, you, you thought of the war, the, uh, the Second World War, uh, as a different world. It was your dad's army and, and rationing and things like that. And I have a very strong feeling that from the perspective of 2008, the 1970s is even weirder than the war was to us. Um, is that the point? Is that what the book yeah, was no, about? I think I just, is it is very much. The, I mean... It, in the 70s, the, the Second World War was actually huge. And, and even those of us who had been born long, long after it, it was still an, an important part of your life. There was a continuity to society at that stage, which changed somewhere in the mid-80s. And a new Britain was born. And from this perspective, the 70s can look very, very weird indeed. The, it's completely... And it was an incredibly unhappy decade, wasn't it? I, I'm not sure about that. I, th- I think on the one hand, actually, there was a... The, there was a great deal of social content that has been lost, that did get lost in the birth of a new Britain. Really? There was a stronger sense of community and of society at the time. And although there were terrible things happening in terms of um, particularly the industrial strife, the, the, you know, and blackouts and shops and industry being on three-day weeks and all the rest of it, I think there was a sense of possibly left over from that spirit of the, of, of the war of people pulling together. And I don't think that exists so much anymore. And I, I, I think there was there was a level of acceptance of things and a fatalism about it. A fatalism in the sense that okay, if the, if the rubbish built up in the streets and if uh, if the, the the lights went out, people accepted. that was just Although, the way course, it was. As you pointed out in in the, in the book, um, the, after the three day week, the birth rate went up enormously because oh, there was nothing yeah. else to do. Yeah, the, the TV went off at what time was it? Ten thirty uh, at night. And well, so, sta- staggered between 10.25 and 10.30 so that not everybody put their kettles on at the same time and blew the national grid, which would have caused even more problems. Um, but there was, there was that sense, I think, of, as I say, people pulling together, people having a shared experience. Everybody was affected equally by those blackouts. The The fact that there were only two and a half TV channels meant that everybody watched the same TV programs. And they didn't go on all night anyway. No, indeed. Day. I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we we talk about TV going off at ten thirty. So it was a, an appalling uh, thing. Actually, TV closed down at eleven thirty anyway. You know, I mean, the, the national anthem would come on at eleven thirty. We'd all stand up in our living rooms and uh, go to bed dutifully, like we were supposed to do. There was certainly no all night TV going on at that stage. But there was that that shared culture that, as I say, I, I think has, has slipped away a bit. I'm mean, not not necessarily better or worse. I don't know, but. But it was 
something that everybody felt that they were they were in the same boat somehow. Well, in, in terms of things being shared, that that's encapsulated in those two and a half TV uh, channels, isn't it? Now everybody watches different things. We all Sky Plus yeah. everything, and we watch whatever we want whenever we want to watch it. Back then, if you wanted to watch Doctor Who, you had to sit down at. I don't know, five thirty yeah. or something yeah. on a Saturday, well, on a Saturday evening. evening, and watch it then. Yeah, and everybody, everybody who was going to did, and there wasn't a lot else on. And and you're never going to get back to the stage where you got thirty million people watching a Morecambe and Wise show simultaneously because no, they're dead. Indeed, but even if they rescreened it, even if there were a new Morecambe and Wise, which seems actually probably unlikely anyway, because I think that's another thing that that, that came out of that shared culture was the fact that most of the TV was aimed. At several generations, the whole point of Morecambe Wise and Dad's Army, the reason they were so big and they're so well-remembered and loved, is that they appealed to not only the kids who are watching it, but their parents and their grannies and everybody, because there was no alternative, everybody watched the same thing and it was all aimed at everybody. There, was, there, there wasn't the same uh, limitations that were placed on, particularly on something like comedy programme like The Office wouldn't have existed in the in the 70s because it's, 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 it's because target it audience is, is, is too small and, and you can't afford to do that. Mm. And of course what was inclusive then was, was inclusive to a shared culture but it, it was fairly um, uh, dismissive of some... Uh, you, you discuss uh, racism in some detail in, mm. in, in, in the book. I saw uh, a bit of The Two Ronnies this afternoon on TV mm-hmm. and it was unbelievable the 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 uh, racist assumptions that were yeah it was it was a very made. casual racism that yeah. was wasn't questioned until towards the end of the decade people did start questioning it but mostly it was just there um, nobody thought it was particularly racist well, sorry some people thought it was particularly racist but in general it was just considered part of the the general nature of society i mean it's part of the warp and the weft of, of where we were and the ethnic minorities were not significantly represented anyway um in in, on in anything. the popular culture oh yeah on, on anything at all i mean not even in the traditional areas that you know are, 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 have always been associated in american culture of, of sport and entertainment it was actually it was very difficult even in those sort of fields for for black people to make any progress in britain at, at the time Leaving aside culture, you, you discuss the politics a great deal as well, and I love the way that you identify the, the right and left uh, significant politicians of the day as Tony Benn and Enoch Powell, rather yeah. than, say, Harold Wilson and, and Ted Heath. Okay, why? Why why Benn and Powell? Benn and Powell were the two that really reached beyond the normal limitations of politics. Enoch Powell particularly was huge. And although he's associated, I mean, particularly this year is the 40th anniversary of the Rivers of Blood speech in '68. And he's identified with 1968 because of that one speech. His influence is just enormous right the way through the 70s and into the 80s. Um, he was he was seen as being the person who spoke up for the ordinary, the ordinary folk. He was the prophet, wasn't he? He was he the prophet was, in the wilderness yeah, who and, uh, and, fought, fought, fought and that he kind told, of. He told the truth when other politicians were mealy mouthed, and Ben evolved into that kind of position during the course of the decade he became seen as as the one person who stood for principle and it was not a time when politics was particularly noted for principles <laughs> no it, wasn't, it was wasn't. it was pre-thatcher what it was all about was managing britain's decline as far as the the the, the top the, the top figures in the political parties were concerned powell and ben were the ones who said it doesn't have to be about that there's something there's something big that we can aspire to. Well, you take us back to the, the, that 
point I was su- suggesting was the case uh, uh, earlier on that it was an un- unhappy decade. But and and uh, from the point of view of Britain's position and, and our, our self image, it was terribly unhappy. One of the one of the uh, um, the things you, you make clear is how how comprehensively Labour stole from the Tories the reputation of being of being the the party that couldn't manage Britain. You, yeah, you know, no, in, in the beginning of the decade, you've got Ted Heath's government completely failing and losing an election mm-hmm. on the basis of you know who, who, who rules. He didn't actually say who rules Britain, but it was. But that was how terrible, it was understood entirely. Yeah, yeah it was these terrible and, strikes and this terrible unrest and this decline. But 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 even the language became. I mean, the the, the title of the book is Crisis. What crisis? Which was famous. Famously, 1979 said, headline in the Sun yes. uh, in, in relation to Jim Callaghan, and yes, he didn't say anything of the sort. He didn't even mention the word crisis. But the headline itself had been used back in 1973-74 to refer to Ted Heath. Uh, the expression "the winter of discontent" had been used in 1973-74 to describe Ted Heath, but they became associated exclusively with the Labour Party and with the Labour Party's failure to manage the, the unions, as it was seen at the time, because the one dominant issue that ran through the entire politics of the period was union power and a feeling that it was getting too strong. It was going beyond the elected representatives that it had helped to bring down Wilson in 1970, Heath in 74, Callaghan in 79. Uh, There was a hat-trick of of, of victories for, for union power bringing down governments as far as it was seen in some quarters at Can least. I put you on the spot? Uh, Callaghan's um, miscalculation in delaying the election from the autumn of 78 into, into 79, yeah. is, that, is, that, is that one of the, the great mistakes of post-war politics? Well, it might be rivaled by Gordon Brown's failure to call an election in the autumn of 2007, of course. But, Only um, time will tell. But he's in very much the same sort of position. Yeah, no, it would, Callaghan would probably have won in 78, was the... The general consensus amongst commentators at the oh, time, at least, might not and, have even, lost. and even if he hadn't, <laughs> quite yeah, even if he hadn't won, and even if he'd gone down, and it wouldn't have been by much, mm. um, and it wouldn't have tainted the politics that came after. Whereas the the the, the winter of discontent played so heavily in the in the media that Callaghan was not only doomed to lose the next election, but doomed to have that hanging over the Labour Party for a long time. I mean, it, it, it ran, as I recall, pretty much right through the 80s. Thatcher would say, yes, but remember the winter of discontent. I Although, mean, the, the, the myth of it became so enormous. Th- Thatcher and her government were, were seriously unpopular until the Falklands. There was a great deal of, of dislike of her. Well, for fairly sound reasons, yeah. I suspect. Um, uh, uh, they, they came into power and, and immediately caused a massive recession. Um, which is obviously after, after the period I'm covering, but will be turning up in my forthcoming book on the 80s. Somebody once said to me that the uh, the big liberalisation, the permissive society of Roy Jenkins, um, all that happened in the 60s, you know, the, the drug legislation and the uh, um, homosexuality being uh, uh, legalised and uh, abortion, all of those mm-hmm. things. The one that didn't, happen in the 60s that happened in the 70s was feminism women's liberation do you accept that and if, if so why do you think that was it it certainly took until the 70s for the legislation to start coming through um again with roy jenkins of course who was then back in the home office um but then roy jenkins didn't initiate any of those he he responded to the pressures that were coming from from outside and feminism 
grew in the late late sixties into the into the seventies and became this this, this powerful force that, that, that could no longer be ignored. And I, th- I think he was responding to to the pressures that were there. Um, it, it, it takes quite a lot to force yourself onto the legislative agenda, and it wasn't until seventy four, seventy five that, that that really the, the pressure became irresistible. And we'll get there eventually. You know, we'll get equal pay for for, for yeah, and and and, and 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 there's it's there's a process. Op- yeah, that's going the, on. there is a time lag with these things. Anyway, I mean, although yes, homosexuality between men was legalized in the 60s as long as you were over 21 and there weren't more than two of you in the house yeah it was in the house as well it wasn't oh, just in private. Yeah. the door yeah. the door could be locked yeah no it was it, was, it had to be it had to be in private really bad if you lived in a block of flats a very poor very poor lookout indeed um but it did eventually come through stronger you know in the 90s it took a, a generation for it to to work its way through these things Often well, they do. do, of course. I mean, you made the same point about the green movement and uh, and uh, environmentalism. I, I yeah, had which completely was forgotten huge, that there was the any element of that in the nineteen seventies, yeah. and yet you identify the roots of it and and, and the the prophets uh, telling us that uh, what was going to happen and being right. Uh, yeah, mostly. Um, it was an early seventies movement. It, it produced famously the Good Life on television, uh, which was responding to that 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 kind of uh, initiative, but. It then faded by the end of the 70s because social conditions you know, were, were, were getting worse. Inflation was running rampant. Employment was growing. There were, there were too many other issues that were going further up the agenda and environmentalism faded away a bit. Which is actually, the, you can see the same thing happening today. Other yeah. concerns Absolutely. squeezing it off yeah. the, uh, the agenda. Yeah. Um, it is still to some extent, and certainly was then, Considered something of an indulgence, it's 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 um, was seen as being something that we couldn't afford by the the late seventies. There were too many more pressing issues, and even the good life stopped being quite as concerned about it and became more obsessed with the relationship between the uh, the goods and their next door neighbours. In well, a traditional all long running series, though, turn into into soap operas eventually, don't they? You 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 have something like that with an issue, and the issue gets pushed to the back. You, with soap operas, you bring in uh, uh, bad characters, and mm-hmm. if they stay, they get better. They get more attractive Very, and nicer. Yeah, invariably. absolutely. Well, no, occasional exceptions. Gripper Stebson and Grange Hill never became nice. They had, they had to expel him. To your they had to expel him in the end. <laughs> they, had, they had to throw him out because he was so nasty. And they couldn't see any way of reforming him. But, yes, in general. You're pretty good on your 70s TV. I, I, have you just spent years watching old videotapes? Or did, were you sitting there through the entire decade watching television, taking notes? No, I wasn't. No, no. Most of it is, is from watching DVDs and, uh, and videos since, I have to admit. Ah, uh, you're not married, are you? <laughs> really? <laughs> I want to take you to pop and uh, pop music because you, um, you you discuss all I mean all, all aspects of popular culture. Of course, you do. Um, pop being one of them, you're pretty dismissive of pop in the seventies. You were not impressed, I think, for a lot of it. Oh, I'm sorry if I gave that impression. It's my favourite period of pop music. Oh, right. Well, in Apart that case, the I, I've misread you there. Uh, you obviously like Bowie, because you've given, you've indeed, given him... Yes. All, all, all the epigrams are, are Bowie, yep. and I recognised them all, so I felt very pleased with myself. <laughs> yeah, really, I mean, you, you sort of chart the decline into the bubblegum pop of the, of the, the mud and the sweet and the, the Gary Glitters. And it, you, could, you, it could be that you don't like them, and therefore the fact that I'm mentioning them makes you think that I don't. But actually, I'm very, very fond of mud and the Bay City Rollers. 
and the Rubettes and Shawaddy Waddy. Good Lord. Oh, there's an admission. You heard it here first. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I think it was a very interesting period of British pop music. I mean, it's objectively, it wasn't that wonderful, I have to admit. it was A lot of it was the whole tone of that in the, the, the mid-70s, by 74, 75, all the big glam rock stars, Bowie and Roxy Music, had, had left. They'd gone off to do other things. And the people who were left behind, the, the, those pop groups were dominated by... Mickey a, Most, a, yeah. <laughs> Well, they, they were dominated by a sense of revivalism. Mm. We, we, but, but then that, that was very much the, the real story of the culture of the, the 70s, I think, was that it was very nostalgic. I noticed that you, you make no reference to the, the complete other strand of, of, uh, of young person's, loud young person's music, which was going on. If you were a Pink Floyd fan or, or a Led Zeppelin fan or sort of one of that crowd, it was a golden age, wasn't it, for you? It could be that that's the music I don't like. Uh, it could be. And that's yeah. why I don't discuss it very much. Um, it certainly doesn't turn up as much in the book as, say, Middle of the Roads, Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap, which I regard as being a, uh, a, classic a, of a, the a, fine, a fine piece of work. Yeah, yeah. I, I cringe every time um, I hear it. Well, I see, I, I tend to have the same response to Pink Floyd, so possibly that's, uh, yeah. um, that's why Middle of the Road turned up more. I don't know. I, it, was, it, it was a very, I, I think, a very interesting period for music. It was... I, I think the problem with a lot of that, um, the, the, the album-based rock of the time, is it didn't actually engage a lot, a lot of the time in, in, in what was going on. It didn't reflect, you know, the, the success of Led Zeppelin Spotty youth didn't, didn't, didn't really reflect a great deal of, of, of the rest of society somehow, to me, I didn't see. Whereas, to take Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap, the fact that that was a big hit, it, a big hit in Italy first, then became a big hit in Spain, and it didn't reach Britain, even though they were a British group. The fact that it didn't get here until several months later, and it only did so because people had been on holiday and heard it there and brought the record back. And that back. was a new phenomenon. That was something that was actually different British in society. British people bringing something yeah. back from... And, and that hadn't happened before because people hadn't gone on holiday to Europe in the same way. Well, they hadn't been able to. You couldn't take money out of the well, country. Well, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The relaxation of the, the exchange uh, controls was, was quite an important element in that. But also people were starting to feel more affluent and it became possible to do so. Foreign holidays went up and one of the results was that gradually the music of Europe has become more standardised and more international. And you end up with a group like ABBA. Sorry, you don't end up with a group like ABBA. You start in the 70s with a group like ABBA being huge right across the continent and speaking in, you know, and singing in the, the lingua franca of, of, of prop, pop music. But that, that reflects a, a, a shift in society in a way that I'm not sure that Led Zeppelin necessarily did. Can we finish by talking about... Uh one of the uh, the icons of the decade. How important was Mary Whitehouse? Mary Whitehouse was very important in the 70s. Um, she had started in the 60s and had made a name for herself, but actually influenced very, very little. Her importance in the 70s was firstly that the tide was starting to turn against... Um, what you were discussing earlier, the, the, the permissive society of, that was associated with Roy Jenkins. She had a very strong political agenda, which isn't always recognised, that it wasn't about obscenity and filth in broadcasting. Actually, what she was interested in was anti-communism. She saw the country becoming more and more communist, and she saw pornography as being a plot to undermine... Uh, well, the moral fibre of the nation. The moral fibre of the nation, capitalism, democracy, and it was funded by and run by 
communists. She probably thought Harold Wilson was as well, run by Moscow. Lots of people did, of course. Mm. Um, but she was she was very important because she had that underlying, absolute passionate, anti-communist crusade that kept her going at a time through the late sixties when it seemed as if her campaign was completely doomed. And she was influential in the sense that she spoke like Enoch Powell. She was understood to speak for a section of society that felt it didn't otherwise have a voice. And when she met Thatcher in the late 70s, and they seemed to get on, some of that image passed on to Thatcher and and, and I think helped to to build the consensus that that, that emerged around, around Thatcherism that it was seen as being a much more traditional morality that was rooted in the 50s and that somehow the clock could be turned back, even though Thatcher actually did nothing to further that belief. The image was still there. Um, it, w- it was not not a direct political influence, but it, the, 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 the climate of the times was shaped by her. And by the late seventies, she was actually having successes. I mean, she did get a, she did win the case against gay news. Mm, that's right. Um, she got a long way down the road, slightly after with um, with Romans in Britain. Um, she was scoring hits. Uh, she did defeat the GLC on their pro- when they proposed to abolish film censorship in London, and she led the campaign against that. She probably had more successes as well in terms of self censorship and people. Uh, desperately uh, trying to avoid oh, yeah. being a target of yeah Mary absolutely Wyatt. yeah I mean there, there were some who enjoyed Dennis Potter legendarily enjoyed deliberately provoking he was a national treasure but then Dennis Potter had had this, the, the the strength to do that those who weren't quite in his position um, felt a bit more threatened when uh, when they were presenting their work to commissioning editors they tended to tone it down a bit. Um, and and as you say, they engaged in a certain amount of self censorship. And she, I mean, she was a figure of fun to a lot of people um, when she campaigned against my dingaling being played. I mean, it wasn't because Chuck Berry shouldn't be doing such appalling music; it was because she thought it was obscene. I mean, that was a joke to everybody, but uh, she did actually have quite a large constituency, and. I, I I don't know. I, I I think I think she's one of the more interesting figures of the period somehow, and the fact that she survived so long. I mean, she survived long enough to see uh, communism end in Eastern Europe, which presumably brought her great pleasure in her last years. Oh, she probably took credit for it. <laughs> indeed, yes, it was probably all her fault, really. Oh, and thank you very much indeed. Uh, crisis, pleasure. what crisis? Who's published it? Orem Press. Very good. It's terrific. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thanks. That was Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. More details can be found at www.green-shoot.com or Tim can be contacted via Green Shoot on 020-323-989-74 or email tim at green-shoot.com.